The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, church. Honored to be with you. So excited to share this time together, get into God's Word together. If you want to turn your Bibles, we'll be in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, we're going to look at 11 to 15. Just as you're turning there, a couple things to remember. Um, there's a lot of volunteer needs we have as a church. And so please do, if you haven't yet, uh, check out those clipboards in the back. Sign up as you can. Also, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper right after the sermon. There's still some elements back there in the foyer if you want to grab those real quick. But we are going to be Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. This will be, I predict, one of the most important moments of your life. Not this sermon, per se, but what the sermon's about. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Let's hear the word of God. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, such a sobering text, such a important reality. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that as we... Consider your word together this morning as your people. Lord, your Holy Spirit would fill us and help us. Lord, please fill me and help me to teach this passage faithfully in a way that pleases you clearly. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would apply it powerfully to each one of us. Lord, you know who we are and our inclination toward you and our lives with you, whether we are yours or not or how we're following you or not. And we pray that you would draw us near even as you warn us, as you proclaim to us the gospel of your son, that we would trust him and live in a manner worthy of who he is and what he's done, that we would be ready for this day. So please do all these things, Lord, for your glory and your love for us. Uh, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had, I've heard people talk about these things, have you ever, you ever had that sort of a dream where some kind of a deadline hit and you found in that dream that you were horribly unprepared and got exposed? Has anybody ever had that before? Um, I think people talk, talk about that a lot. They, it's a dream where maybe you're at school and you found you didn't get dressed that day or, um, or it's time for the test and you realize you didn't study. Uh, or uh, for me, this is the weird pastor version of this dream. 
uh, it's time for a sermon and the whole place is packed and there's probably like in my dream, there's notable leaders who are there, like other preachers I respect. And it's time for me to preach. And then this moment is just on replay where I can't, I can't, I can't find it. I, I don't have a sermon. It just replays. But it's this terrifying idea. Can, can you relate to it? This terrifying idea that everyone's watching and you're unprepared and you've been exposed. It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? But that kind of thing and the commonality of it, it's, it says something about us, right? It says something about our hearts. We know there's standards to meet this and that aspect of life all over the place. There's standards to meet. We know we'll be judged according to these standards. And we fear that exposure. We fear the idea of being tested and found wanting. So we, we play that out in a middle, million normal ways every day, and it motivates us to prepare, doesn't it? There's a test coming up, so we got to learn to study. There's a, there's a game or a concert coming up. We better practice, or uh, we got to go to school and prepare so we're ready for the job interview, or we got to get our stuff together for the presentation, or, or if, you're, if you're a parent, how much of your work is getting children prepared? Prepare them for this, prepare them for that, for, engage with them so that they learn how to prepare themselves because we know in a thousand ways the moment of examination is coming. It's coming. So as you think of all the things that you prepare for or that you prepared for even just this week and how much energy and emotional effort and forethought and, and preparation you put into that, and now consider the reality that we face in our text this morning. According to this passage, each one of us is going to stand before the judgment throne of God himself. Talk about being exposed. You see, I can kind of fake it to you and you can kind of fake it to me and I know we can all fake it to ourselves, but here's the one place you can't fake it. And all the excuses get dissolved, and what's left is just the cold, hard reality of who you are and how you've, you've lived. And the stakes are as high as they could possibly be. So I guess I want to ask you, if you were ever going to prepare for anything, wouldn't it be this? If there's a moment you want to be ready for, wouldn't you want it to be this one? Doesn't this moment call for a certain level of passion, commitment, forethought, preparation, because of the reality of what it is? Don't you want to be ready to stand before God? Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation, and we're coming to the end. There's just four sermons left, including this one. So thanks for bearing with me. Not only are we coming to the, book, to the end of the book, though, we're coming to the end of the story. We've seen that Jesus is coming back. And from the perspective of our text last week, he has come back. And so now we're seeing what happens right after he comes back. So next week, it's a picture of heaven. You'll want to come back for that one, right? 
Uh, we're, we're excited. But before that, today, it's Judgment Day. So there's four things I want to think with you about from this text. Number one, I, th- I want to think with you about the terminus. And that word gives the idea of there's this final point where every, everything is going to this point. Like the, the train tracks lead here. This is, this is the station. This is where we're going. The terminus. And so my idea there is there's a place we will all inevitably go. All, all roads do lead to this place. Second, there's a verdict. A decision will be made about you according to what you've done. Terminus, a verdict. There's a decision. Then, number three, there's a sentence. That verdict is going to take you somewhere else. The text is real clear about that. There's an eternal destiny. There's a difference between these two places, and the difference could not be more extreme. You're going to really want to go to one and really not want to go to the other. And the fourth is the response. What should we do in light of these things? So terminus, verdict, sentence, response. Let's start with the terminus. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So just a reminder again, uh, we're reading Revelation biblically and symbolically. Revelation is full of symbols. And here I think we have another one. And I'll just ask you this question. Does, uh, does God need to sit? Uh, is, a ch- is there a chair that fits him. And you're already like, what? No, he's spirit. It doesn't work like that. Right. So the throne here, it's not like God's tired and, oh, I got to sit on my my heaven throne. No, that's not it. The throne signifies a spiritual reality. And don't think when I say spiritual reality, I mean something that's less real than physical. Oh, no. The physical, in a way, is less real than the spiritual. Uh, What was it that created all this material stuff? It was the spiritual. God himself, that's ultimate reality. So this this throne signifies an ultimate reality. And so we read Revelation symbolically in our symbols. We've seen this over and over and over again. Where are they drawn from? The Old Testament every time. And this is the same thing. Reference to The prophet Daniel, chapter 7. So look at Daniel 7, verses 9 to 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. For time's sake, all I'll say here is you see some of the holiness of God. You see the wisdom of God, the eternality of God. And you see how overwhelming this throne is. And you see how the books are going to be opened at this throne. And so that's what John is talking about here or in Revelation. It's the, it's the fulfillment. It's the occurrence of what Daniel talked in talked about in Daniel 7. So we come before the throne of God, and there's, there's three things about this throne I want you to see in the text. Number one, it's the throne of the creator. It's the throne of the creator. You see, uh, in a way, earth and sky flee, flees. Did you see that? So what are we talking about? Well, first of all, 
One reason we're accountable to God is that he is the creator. Have you ever, have you ever asked this question yourself? Why does God get to demand um, who you are and how you ought to live? I mean, I can't do that, right? People, people all over the place are, are, in our day are telling us, you have to live this way. And to, to nine out of ten of them, I'm like, who are you, right? Who are you to tell me how to live? In our generation, our day and age, we love that. Who are you to tell me? I'll define how to live, right? But there, there is someone who has the right to tell you who you are and how to live. And who is that? It's God. And the main reason for that is he made you. You're actually his. And in fact, every th- your, your start, upholding your life throughout, giving you food, giving you a community to raise you up, giving you your work ethic, ethic that you're so proud of that got you all that you have, giving you your talents, giving you your skills, giving you all things. He's given it to you. It's his. You owe it to him. You're accountable to him. This is the throne of the creator. And because he's a creator, we're accountable to him for that. And in our heart of hearts, I think everyone knows this. Paul says this in Romans 1, we know from what has been made, there is a God who's worthy of worship. There is a moral fabric to reality. We ought to love and do what is right. If you listen to the most, the most evil people or the most, I guess, even the, the harshest atheist will have an argument with someone about what they didn't do or what they did do and how it wasn't right or not. Look at your own arguments, even your worst ones. Somebody was arguing about how somebody else was wrong, and we're all assuming when we argue about how people are wrong, we're all assuming what? There's an ultimate standard, and we are all accountable to it. And that standard can only be God himself, the creator. And so you see here, uh, earth and sky flee away. I think this is a personification, right? It, it does give the idea that earth and sky went, oh, the creator, and ran away. <laughs> now, it's really hard for us to imagine how that works as we stand before the throne, and I won't begin to tell you. I don't know, and we remember uh, God doesn't tell us everything we want to know. He tells us everything we need to know, and this symbolism is telling you what you need to know, and part of what you need to know is the creator is going to recreate his creation, So earth and sky flees away. We know from the very beginning in Genesis, we know from in Romans, right? Due to human sin, humans were to steward the earth. Due to human sin, creation itself is is cursed. It's, It's flawed. It's in corruption. It's not working the way it's supposed to work. And we can really imagine God's grace here, right? Because even in this flawed creation, isn't this earth fantastic and beautiful and glorious, I want to go on vacation to Yellowstone, God willing, I'm going to, this July because I love to see God's glory in his creation. This world is amazing, and it's broken, and it's cursed. It's groaning in Romans 8. This is not the way it's supposed to be, and it's not the way it's going to stay. It's not the way it's going to stay. And so when God comes to finally judge, right, and deal with human rebellion, this is what has to happen right before the new creation. Look what happens in just the next verses, Revelation 21.1. When sin is done away with in finality, look what happens. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new, what? Earth. 
for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. So this is the throne of God the creator. And before he renews the earth, he will deal with sin on judgment day. Second thing about the throne, it's the throne of the judge. In Daniel, you saw white hair. Uh, In Revelation, you see a white throne. And white signifies purity and wisdom, perfect justice. And so we just need to know that at this throne, there is perfect knowledge of every detail, every context, and every situation. Perfect knowledge of every detail, every context, every situation. All the background information is known. All the influences are known. All the histories, all the experiences. It's a knowledge of the truth with perfect precision. And guess what that does to your excuses? I won't go into them in detail, but several times Jesus talks about how Um, Here's one example. He says to this this generation of people who weren't seeking him, they weren't listening to him, he says, the queen of the south will rise up and testify against you on judgment day. You ever ever ponder that? So the queen of the south, I mean, you read about this in, in Kings, the time of Solomon, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and the story there is she made this huge effort traveled all these hundreds of whatever miles, all these expenses, just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She made this huge effort to go hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus says to his generation right there, you're not making any effort to listen to me. And I'm greater than Solomon. And on judgment day, Jesus says, this lady from hundreds of years ago will testify against you because she made a greater sacrifice for something less than you would make for something greater. You know what this means for all your excuses? Think of all the reasons you you can't do what you ought to do and you did do what you shouldn't do. I would bet there's somebody out there in history who had a harder time than you did, a worse setup than you had, more of a sacrifice than you made, who will be able to testify against you in that day and be like, well, I did it and this is what it cost me. And then my excuse goes, So let's just go ahead and land this plane. You will have no excuse. I will have no excuse. I just, it's best just to go like this, right? Uh, And we'll we'll see what we need to do. But there's a judge, okay? There's a judge. And and listen, as, as, as scary as this is, Isn't this reality of a final judge the only way justice can actually exist at all? Isn't it? To have a final standard and one who actually will fix things? I mean, if justice is purely a human invention, which some people say it is, then it fails at every level. It it can't actually occur. I mean, even the best justice in this life is often very imperfect. And moreover, especially in our day and our time, so much that is actually or biblically unjust occurs and is called justice. I mean, we're so confused on this. And if humanity is the ultimate hope for making things right, just despair. There will be no justice. But if this moment exists, the throne of the creator, the throne of the judge, the right will prevail, the wrong shall fail, because there's a judge. It's also the throne of the king. 
And what I want to say here is he has all the power to do what is right and good. And there's no one on this day who's going to be able to thwart or debate with him. Um, do you, are you going to try to debate with the one who knows everything and can do everything uh, and provides everything? Uh, and, and also, there's no way out. You know, can anybody be like, can we stop this bus? I'd like to get on a different one. Can we, can we stop reality? I need a new reality. I mean, that's a game, that's a game we're playing in this life. But in, in, in that moment, that game is over. We see it for what it is. God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and probably Jesus sitting on this throne. And there's no, there's no one else to whom to appeal. There's no other standard to which to appeal. This is the terminus. And we will all stand before this throne. Verse 12 emphasizes this. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now, first of all, great and small, what do you think that little phrase is supposed to do? You think you're great? Where will you stand? Before the throne. If you're small and a nobody, where will you stand? Before the throne. Uh, if you're human, you're going to stand before the throne. Uh, he does that again in verse 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. I think that's the idea that even people who, you know, they died in a, the boat went down and they dissolved at the bottom and they'll never be, you know, they're crab food. No, they'll be there too. Um, the ones who died a long time ago, yeah, they'll be there too. The idea here is who's going to be there? Everybody. Past, present, future, everybody. They're going to be there. I also want you to see, did, did you notice I saw the dead, great and small, standing? That's funny language, right? You like that when the Bible does that? The dead are doing what? Standing. Do you see that very often? Uh, the dead are standing. How did that happen? Well, you're reminded. Um, you're not eternal when it comes to the past, but you are eternal when it comes to the future. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And he says more, but I'll skip to 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. You like that? Dead people are standing in Revelation 20. What are dead people doing in John 5? They're hearing, okay? Moreover, 29. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to what? The resurrection of judgment. There's a way in which everyone will be resurrected and actually stand before the throne. And man, if, if you're still in the world where Jesus is just a good teacher, I just let's pop that bubble real quick. Can we do that? What did Jesus just say about himself? I'm going to talk to everyone ever, and they're going to rise up because I told them to. Okay. Wow, can people who are only good teachers say that? Because if you say you're going to do that and you can't do that, you're not a good teacher. And if you say you're going to do that and you can do that, you're far more than a good teacher. He's the son of God. So we're all going to stand before him. That's the tournament. 
There's the throne. We'll all be there. Uh, you ever heard uh, people say all religions lead to God? Um, that's totally false when it comes to being right with God and being saved by God. And we know that because of Jesus Christ. We, we don't want to say that in pride. It's, it's not because I'm better than you. I'm, I'm not better than you. And any real Christian, I think, is humbled deeply to realize if you're saved, it's because you did not deserve it. So there's not a lot of room for pride in a mature Christian. But there's a way all religions lead to God. Because everybody, no matter what religion they claimed, is going to stand right here before the throne of Jesus. Now the verdict. The verdict. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. The books were opened. And then we see in those verses, everyone will be judged by what was written in the books, end of verse 12, according to what they had done. The books are opened. And again, I don't know if this is literal or symbolic. If God has a library, I'm sure it's amazing. Uh, how big would a book be to have everybody's name in it? Does he need to look through the book? I don't know how all this works. That's not really the point, is it? What's the point of the book? He knows. Oh, does he know? Like people in the ancient world would record all the details in the book so they could remember and know. God knows. He so knows. Uh, and many times for God's people, his knowledge comforts us. Look at Psalm 56, 8. I love Psalm 56. Psalm 56, 8. You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? That's precious. If you belong to the Lord, uh, what is the heart of the psalmist saying in a verse like this? Isn't he saying, God knows about my hurts and my pains and my sorrows, and they're actually precious to him. He keeps my tears in his bottle. He just is such intimate care that God would know you and care for you like that. So we, we love the idea of God's knowledge, and it's, it's all in the book. But in this case, it's rather sobering as well. He knows every aspect of you and your life, and all things are taken into consideration. He knows what you knew. He knows what you were given. He knows what you said you believed. He knows what you expected from others. He knows what you did, what you cared about, your motives and heart, soul, mind, and strength. He knows. And you will stand there for yourself. And here, it's kind of an individual thing. You will answer for you, and there will be no one else to blame. You before the throne. So let's just ask ourselves, how will that go for you? How do you, how do you feel about that sitting here right now? There's so many things that affect how we, you know, our approach to how we feel about that, whether or not we're ready. One is what you believe about the standard God will use. So here's a question for you. Are you a, are you a good person? You think you're a good person? Now, to be fair, a lot of times we use language like that. We're just saying, in general, as human beings go, okay? So if I'm speaking from that perspective, in general, as human beings go, you guys are some of my favorite people. You're good people, okay? This is my people right here. You're good people. But there's another way to use that language, right? Are you righteous before the standard according to your deeds? And in many ways, people say, oh, I'm a good person, what could God possibly have against me? And in our day, uh, 
I think this is real. The most popular religion, no matter what the external label is, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's been proven sociologically, I think. It's it's definitely part of my experience. People, moralistic therapeutic deism, I'll unpack that real quick. Moralistic, just be a good person. That's kind of the rule, right? Be a nice person. We don't get into more details than that, really, but it's just, it's just be a nice person. Second, therapeutic. The real, the real driving factor in your life should be, does it make you happy? Your happiness is primary. And you should be a good person because usually that makes you happy. And if you can't be a good person in those hard ways, well, you, kinda, you really need to do what's good for you. Am I right? Am I speaking the cultural language? Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. There's some sort of a God out there, but he's kind of undefined and uninvolved. And all he wants you to do is be kind of nice and be happy. That's what people believe in the West. That's what people believe. And maybe as you're listening, you're thinking, oh, I kind of believe that. That perspective seems to find this idea of, well, generally be a nice person as the standard. And I can kind of base whether or not I'm nice on this vague standard on where I judge myself. And what's the easiest way to judge yourself? Well, find someone around you who's worse than you. Well, at least I'm not. Those people in the other political party, oh. At least I'm not Hitler. What a pathetic standard. That God would find like the, the dredge of the earth and historical tyrants from history and be like, well, did you, you know, did you get above those? And this text reminds us that's not the standard. <laughs> it is so not the standard. It is, that is not the way it will go. Jesus summarized the law in saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love him with everything you are all the time. And love your neighbor with the same zeal and passion and care and concern and effort as you love yourself. And if that's true, that's horrible. I mean, it's beautiful. Wouldn't it be great to live that way? And it's horrible. Why is it horrible? Because you're not good. It's, it's worse than that. Let's spend a little time on the bad news before we get to the good news, okay? Because we need to be humble, and we need to cling to Christ. Look at Matthew 5, 21. You know, Jesus had a lot to say to people who thought they were good on their own. A lot to say. In fact, he had more to people who were self-righteous about how good they were without him. He had more to say to them, in a way, than he did to the really bad people who kind of knew they were bad already. Look at Matthew 5, 21. You've heard it. Heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And I would assume in a room like this, most of us at least would be like, whew, I'm good. I ain't never murdered anybody. Okay? Sweet. And then Jesus says, let's apply the law to the heart. Look at verse 21. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He just talked about hell, and he did it in the context of how we talk about other people. Dang. When I hear Christian leaders 
thinking and speaking in sloppy language towards other Christian leaders that in a way is slanderous. And they're talking about how much they care about God's ways. I'm like, did you read this? How, how can Jesus compare what we say to murder? It's the difference between like a seed and a tree. Like an acorn turns into an oak, okay? And so when you say something nasty about something and, and somebody and your attitude towards them is like devaluing them and, and cutting at who they are, there's an anger and a, dis, a despising, right? We read it in our text outside, Revelation 14. Don't despise your brother. When you, when you speak in a way that's despising of someone, in a way it can be the seed of murder because that's what murder is, full grown, I despise you so much, I don't even think you should exist. In fact, I want you out. That's how Jesus makes, so the seed of the sin, gosh, if if that's true, like I've never physically murdered, praise to God. But if you're going by Jesus' standard, how many of y'all in here are murderers by that standard? I'm guilty. We could go on and on, that's just just one. Here's another one, Let's, let's make it worse. Matthew 12, 35. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. Sweet, yeah. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. You feeling all right so far? You're not evil, right? You're good. Look at verse 36. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for what? Every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What's it like when that take place? Maybe like some, if it, was, if it was like a sports center thing for me, and it was just the highlights of my best words, you know, my one-liners or the best parts of my sermon, I might be like, oh, yeah, that was good. And, and then they'd be like, oh, we're going to play those other words too. Those words, those words you said about the people who actually were good to you and kind to you. Those words you even said about your enemy in a way you didn't need to say it because you were called to love your enemy. Those words that didn't fit with that part in Ephesians, whatever's good, true, or only what gives grace for the moment. Those words, and, and those words start playing, and now I'm... And then it gets to the bad part, and you're all watching me when I'm up there, and you're all going, ooh. And some of you are like, you said that about me? Just wait, it'll be your turn next, right? (laughs) How are you going to do if you're judged by your careless words? And you you can't just go, well, I was tired, or I I was angry, or did you see what they did to me? No, did you see what Jesus did? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words show you who you are. That's what was in your heart. So let's, church, what do you think on that judgment day? If all we have is being judged according to what we've done, what's the verdict going to be? Yeah, guilty, fire, and that's what I deserve, right? Are you with me? Praise God, there's another book. There's another book. Did you see what it's called? It's the book of life. 
There was, that another book was opened. It, it stands out in a way. It's the book of life. It's not getting death and fire. It's getting life. It's getting the new creation. And your only hope for making it through standing before that throne successfully is to get your name in the book of life. You've got to get your name in the book of life if you want to be prepared for this moment. Step one, right? The big step, get your name where? In the book of life. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, you can't earn your way in it. Is that, is that the mindset? Well, if I could just get my good deeds to 51%, my bad deeds to 49 I can push over the top, get in the book of life. No, that's not how it works. Uh, you can't be good enough. How do you get your name in the book of life? Well, to know the answer to that, you got to see whose book the book of life is. Look at Revelation 13.8. We've seen this before. You want your name written. Revelation 13.8. Written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of who? The lamb who was slain. That's his book. It's a different book. The book of life of the lamb who was slain. And who's the lamb who was slain? It's the Lord Jesus. It's his book. And we remember that the idea of Jesus as a lamb is a picture of what we call the heart of the gospel. That Jesus was the perfect lamb, so he lived a perfect life. If his book was opened before the throne and they went through all his thoughts, words, and deeds, what's the verdict on Jesus' life? Perfect. Righteous. His book is perfect. And yet he's the lamb, not just in his perfection, but he's the lamb who was slain. Why was he slain? He was slain for those whose books were far from perfect. Jesus Christ took the lake of fire for his people on the cross. He did it. He drank that cup. And his victorious resurrection vindicates what he's done to save his people. And so we, we get to the heart of the gospel. To trust yourself to Jesus Christ. You hear the news of the good news. The, the news of what Jesus has done that's so good. He lived the life for you. He died on the cross in your place. He rose from the dead. If you'll repent of your sin, turn from your self-rule, and trust yourself to him. All that he is and all that he's done will account to you. I love the way 2 Corinthians 5 ties this up. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him Jesus Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yes. So... Here's an illustration. Your book is open. They go through everything. Guilty. If you're in Christ, Jesus stands for you there. Move your book. Puts his book in the place. It's open. Perfect, 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 perfect. And Jesus says, this one's in me. This one's in my book. And you are called righteous before the throne. 
Is that good news? That's how you get prepared, number one. You trust Jesus and him alone, not your own works, and he will stand for you. Look at Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So if God says of you, righteous, who's going to come and say, not righteous? Well, they can come and try, I guess, but it doesn't matter. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us. Oh, the idea that the one who is the judge is also the one who prays for you. Because you're in him. And it's right for him to do this because he took the penalty that you deserve. He took the wrath that was coming. And it's gone. You're in Christ. Praise God. That's how you get ready. But there's more to say. What about this assertion that we will all be judged according to what we've done? I mean, you saw that in there, right? It's definitely saying we will all be judged according to what we've done. So I, I want to try to make this category clear. I think it's important. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He's writing to Christians. He is a Christian. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what? For what he's done in the body, good or evil. So I'm, I'm telling you first, let me kind of make it systematic theology, Okay. Uh, we're a Reformed church. There's a lot of varieties to what that can mean, but here it means we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Romans 4, Jesus justifies the ungodly. So if you trust in him, no matter how awful your life has been, you trust in him, you are made eternally righteous through faith. And what's that next word? Alone. And that's what holds us together in our unity. Faith alone, right with God. Grace alone. It's God's sovereign love that worked this in you. In Christ alone, who he is and what he's done. And that's true. And I would die on that hill. And you'll be judged according to your works. How does that work? Well, I'll tell you how I think it works. On this day, evidence is everything, right? It's perfect judgment. And, uh, and your book was open, and it has some problems, and you should have been guilty, and instead you've been declared righteous. And, and you're, you're righteous through faith in Christ, faith alone in Christ alone. And there on that day, some, some question could arise that says, well, what's the proof this person has faith? Don't a lot of people claim faith in Jesus and you're like, mm. right? The, the scriptures are clear. Not everyone who claims faith in Christ has it. It's just clear. So what's the evidence that you're justified, made right with God by faith alone in Christ alone? What's the evidence for that? There's only one kind of evidence. You know what it is? It's works. <laughs> Now, it goes deep, works of the mind, yeah, the way you think, work of the heart, yeah, what you love, what you want, yeah, works of the body, everything in your life. What's the proof 
you've put a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. There's a great example of this, I think, in Scripture. Uh, it's a thief on the cross in Luke 23. You're familiar with that guy? Jesus was crucified next to two thieves, and they're, they're both wicked. Um, and they, they start wicked, and they say wicked things. And then one of them majestically converts on the cross. And I love this man's faith because he, he didn't see even what you and I can see, right? He, he didn't see the resurrection. He didn't see all the epistles. He didn't see, the gro- he, he didn't see so many things we get to see. And there on that cross, he put his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, at that moment, what percentage of his, like, what kind of good works resume does that guy have in that moment? He's a zero, okay? He's a zero, and he's going to live for, like, two more hours. He he doesn't have a chance to get to 51%, 49%. He's just bad. Look what happens, Luke 23, 39. So one of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other... The one who's trusted Christ, the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Look at verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Do you see there on the cross, this man speaks up for Jesus. He speaks up for Jesus, and at this point in his life, that is his only good work. And what does Jesus say to him? Verse 42, the man says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believes Jesus is the king. And look what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, today, truly I say to you, today you will what? You'll be with me in paradise. Good enough for me. His faith in Christ justified him. And that moment of speaking for Christ was evidence of his faith. And he'll be judged according to his works, and he's going to have like two good works. And that's all. And his name's in the book of life. Because the good works show the reality of his faith in Christ. Amen. Amen. The terminus, the verdict, the books will open. Unless you're in Christ, you'll be guilty. If you are in Christ, you'll be righteous. The sentence. That's the verdict, the sentence. Um, verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is one of the hardest themes in Christianity, right? Hell, an eternal hell. Um, I don't think the lake of fire is literal. I don't think there's like a hole in a ground and filled up with fire. And, and one reason I don't think it's literal is because death is thrown into it. Death is thrown into, again, we're, 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 that's not the point, right? Um, what's a lake of fire supposed to feel like to you? What's that communicate to you? This is awful, okay? And I'll, I'll tell you, I think the truth behind the symbol is worse than the symbol. It's terrible. It's eternal. It's conscious. It's, it's, it's the judgment of God poured out in fullness. But I want to tell you the logic for hell. Listen, I, I don't enjoy this doctrine, and I'm suspicious of anyone who does. And, and the reason I think that's appropriate is because I deserve to go there. And, and this is a, 
It's a, a sober doctrine, and there's people we love who aren't going to go there, or who are going to go there in this case. And that should deeply concern us. It should be hard for us. It should be heavy for us. But the logic of it, we should appreciate, because here it is with hell. The punishment fits the crime. God is just. The punishment always fits the crime. This is a repeated, unrepentant denial of God and a repeated breaking of the standard. You know, justice is based on what you've sinned against, right? If I steal $5, that should be one punishment. If I steal a car, that should be another punishment. If I murder somebody, that should be a different punishment because the punishment has to fit the, fit the crime and I can fin, sin against different values of things. Well, what if you nearly infinitely sin against an infinitely valuable, infinite God? The punishment deserved for that is infinite. Moreover, we see we're going to follow our leaders. Uh, speaking the language of Revelation, right? Where did the false prophet go? The lake of fire. Where did the beast go? The lake of fire. Where did the dragon go? The lake of fire. And each one of those movements, right, was motivating the world to sin, rebellion, and idolatry. And those who won't trust in Christ they follow their leader. They go where their leaders go. Jesus called hell. Uh, you know, have you ever heard it said, hey, the God of the Old Testament, he's mean. The God of the New Testament, Jesus, he's nice. Have you heard that one? I'll just tell you the God of the Old Testament is, is loving. And nobody talks about hell more than Jesus. It's the same God. And this is justice for the crime. And Jesus called that place a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the justice we deserve. But there's another sentence as well. It's a vindication. And we, I mentioned in verse 14, death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Don't you like that idea? Death itself. Have you heard that poem by John Donne? Uh, oh, it's a great, I, I forgot to put it in my notes. Death be not proud. Because death is going to go down. And this theme of you follow your leader, that'll be true for those who are in Christ as well. Where is Jesus going to be? Reigning in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And where will his people be? We who are anchored to him. We will be there as well. The joy, the eternal joy of eternal life and glorified bodies on a new earth together forever with God himself. Sweet, sweet things. We get to look at that next week. But this is, this is, where, this is where we end up this morning. The terminus, we're all going to stand before the throne of God. Um, there's going to be a verdict. If you stand based on your own works, it'll be guilty. If you're in Christ... And pursue works for his pleasure due to your faith in him. You'll be counted righteous and there'll be a sentence. If you're not in Christ, you will go to judgment. If you are in Christ, you will go to the new heavens and the new earth forever. And this is the truth. How should you respond? How should you prepare? There's a million things we could say. I mean, the whole New Testament in a way is about this. But I want to break it down into two. Number one, make sure you trust Jesus Christ 
as your savior from your sins, as your treasure who you love, and as your Lord who you follow. Trust Christ. So maybe for some of you hearing today, you're thinking, I don't know if I've trusted him or I've lived in rebellion to him or I just knew about him, but I've never actually trusted him. May today be the day you say, Jesus, save me. And you turn to him and you trust in him and you find rest for your souls and knowing that you can stand before the throne because Jesus will stand for you. Trust Christ. That's the first thing. Second things. Do good works for the pleasure of the one who saved you. Do some good works. And I want to be clear. Don't do good works to justify yourself. You'll ruin all the good works. If you do good works to justify yourself, you'll be like, well, I have more good works than that person does. And you'll forget salvation by faith alone. No, you do good works because I want to please you, Lord Jesus. I want to love what you love. I want to love your people. I want to follow your word. If you do good works out of that motivation, oh, God is keeping them in his book. And praise God for the ways so many of you have a legacy of good works. Are you perfect? No, that's not even the discussion. But are you genuine Christians who want to live for Jesus Christ? And do you put in the work to fight your sin, to live in obedience, to love your neighbor, to love your brother and sister? That work will be seen on that day as evidence of your faith. Put in the work. So I want to ask you to ask yourself, Two questions as you think about preparing for this day. Number one, because we want to have works, a life that lives for the pleasure of Jesus. Number one, what's one thing I'm doing I really need to stop doing? Will you ask the Holy Spirit to show you that? I'm not going to give you 20 things because you and I, we can't fix 20 things at once. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you what's one thing I'm doing I really need to stop doing. Maybe you're watching things on TV or the computer you should not be watching. And you kind of excuse that, made that no big deal. You want that on screen on Judgment Day? Is that evidence of faith or evidence of not? Put it away. Share it with a trusted believer. Put it away. Maybe it's how you talk. Maybe it's outbursts of anger. Put it away. What's one thing? you are presently doing, you should not be doing as a follower of Christ. And attack that thing for his sake, for the joy of living for Jesus' pleasure. Second thing, what's one thing I'm not doing that I really ought to start doing? Maybe you haven't shared the gospel with anyone in a long, long time. Maybe you haven't worked to build a relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus and talk, spoken of his name. Maybe there's a way you need to serve somehow the, the poor. Or there's, there's countless ways to serve Christ in this world, right? Countless ways, but you know, part of my sin isn't just evil things I do, it's good things I don't do. What's one way God's moving you into, I need to love this people in this way? Put it into practice. Listen to how Peter talks at the end of it's 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Right? It's kind of the idea of Jesus coming back, standing before that throne. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Stay focused, right? Stay prayerful. Above all, verse 8, above all. What? 
Keep loving one another earnestly. That's the main picture of faith in Christ. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Maybe that's your thing you should do. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You want to trust Christ and you want this kind of stuff on the resume of your life. And you'll be ready. You'll be ready for that day. Let's pray. We'll take the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the relief of our fears in Jesus Christ, that his life could stand for us, his death for us, his resurrection for us. And through him, we're declared righteous, we're made right with you. Oh, Lord, save, save sinners today. And Lord, refine your people today. Help us move forward in ways that we can please you. Evil things we put away, good things we put on. Speak to us today. Help us move forward in these things so that we can be ready. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.